gotta do what I gotta do. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 7 of the MMA Rundown. My name is Ben Gordon, I'll be your host again. Uh, we're going to be covering UFC 210 primarily on the episode. We'll also be going over the UFC on Fox card that's coming up next week, but uh, a lot of stuff went on on the UFC 210 card, and I want to get right into it right away. So we're going to start with the main event on that, which was Daniel Cormier defeating Anthony Rumble Johnson. So in the preview show last week when I was talking about this fight, I said I'd watch the first fight again and realized that every time that Rumble would kind of have something good going, he'd get a little bit too eager, and that's when Cormier would be able to close the distance on him and be able to start wrestling him. And I felt like over the year and a half, there wasn't going to be enough that D- that um, Rumble could do to change this to get to the point where he'd win this fight. And when this fight came out, or when it, when the fight started and Rumble came out, I was kind of surprised to see the adjustments he had tried to make. So initially my thought on what his adjustments might be is he may still try to strike with him, but kind of strike at a distance and kind of pick his shots. Whereas in the first fight, he landed that big right hand and then just started chasing after him. Uh, he got a little eager with the kicks in the second round, and he just started throwing too many. Cormier would, would catch one and then get a takedown on him. This time around, he started off by kind of like going for an oblique kick to the front leg of Cormier, which to an extent, it makes sense. Cormier does have kicks, but he primarily likes to throw punches, and especially against a guy like Rumble, you don't really want to get too eager with your kicks and open yourself up too much. So to use that front kick to kind of stop Cormier from throwing too many shots of his own or to get too aggressive and to really plan on his front leg and throw hard right hands. I, I understand that. But for him to come in and try to wrestle him, that was very bizarre to me. So Rumble is a very good wrestler, and he was able to get Cormier down a couple of times. And in theory, if you think about Daniel Cormier, if he has to be underneath the guy like Rumble and Rumble is throwing his ground and pound, that's a bad spot for him to be in. But if you're if you're game planning for Rumble Johnson, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That's not really a smart game plan to have where you're going to say, hey, you're going to fight an Olympic wrestler who out-wrestled you, out-grappled you in the last fight a year and a half ago. We want you to try to do that to him this time. It, it really didn't make a whole lot of sense. And Throughout much of the first round, uh, Rumble would be pushing Cormier against the fence, then Cormier would be able to spin him around, and then he'd kind of work for some stuff. I was actually kind of impressed on Rumble's end, where in the first fight, once they start getting clinched up, or even if um, Cormier would go for a takedown, Rumble would be really good at avoiding it, or Rumble wouldn't be good at it. He'd actually get caught and taken down. Uh, this time around... Not as much when he was clinched up against the fence, doing a really good job of defending. He was also being aggressive at attacking on, in his own right. But even at times, I think Cormier at one point had caught a either caught a kick or went in on a single leg. Thought he was going to be able to finish before he got to the fence. Wasn't. They got to the fence and they started um, grappling at it again. But eventually, after the first round was over, you'd have to give it to Rumble. There was that weird takedown thing at the end of the round. But either way, whether you give Rumble the takedown or not, you, you shouldn't. But even if you did... Uh, it, it wouldn't matter. He won that round. He broke Cormier's nose. Second round comes along. Same type of thing. Rumble pushes him up against the fence. They clinch. Uh, this time, Cormier is able to get Rumble down towards the middle slash end of the round. And then once he gets him down, it's kind of like the third round of the first fight where he's just pounding on him, takes takes the back and gets a choke. And Rumble really wasn't doing anything to fight. He was just kind of sitting there taking the punches, wasn't really blocking, wasn't trying to turn into a guard and work his way back up. It was really bizarre. And even even knowing what he said after the fight for, for him to not even really try to fight back, like it's just kind of bizarre to me. And it, it sort of shows that the reputation that rumble has as being a bit of a front runner. He may say that it's changed each time a new fight comes around, but it really hasn't. I mean, obviously for a guy who can strike as well as he does, you can be a front runner and get away with it against a lot of the best guys. Cause who's really going to stop you. But when you have a guy like Cormier, who's really going to challenge you, and I'm sure John Jones would challenge him as well. You, you have to be able to dig deep, and he really didn't there, and that was kind of disappointing. So fight ends. They go to 
Um, Joe Rogan, he's about to interview Daniel Cormier, and Cormier says, hey, Rumble, you can go first. And Rumble is asking for his coaches to come by, which it was kind of odd that his coaches were so far away, especially Henry Hooft. Um, even if they knew what Rumble was about to say, for them to be that far away doesn't make any sense. I feel like if they knew it, then they definitely should have been there. But even if you don't, like you don't just walk away from your fighter, even if you feel like he gave up. So that that I felt was pretty disrespectful on their part. Hopefully there's some other reason for it why they weren't there, but definitely did not look good at the time. But Rumble had said that he had gotten a job or a position somewhere else. wasn't clear, didn't really specify what it was, but it was something that he had wanted, so now he's looking to move on. I don't know what that could be. You have to think for what he makes in the UFC right now. He's definitely making six figures, and the more, the more he fights, and especially if he's getting the finishes, uh, definitely making a lot of money. He's been a competitor his whole life. He's wrestled. He, he talked about how he didn't want to have to deal with like all the sweaty guys in the room and all that. And it, that's a bit of a weird thing, I guess. When you're preparing for a fight, you're working a lot harder. But there are a lot of guys who just as lifelong martial artists, or just even people who are hobbyists who do that just for fun. So I guess maybe it was the fight camps that kind of bugged him more than anything else. But for him to then say that he was going to retire and he was done with the sport, that was. That was shocking. I mean, he's clearly still one of the best light heavyweights in the world. He's, I would say he's number three behind Jones and Cormier. And with the power that he has, he can definitely knock any of those guys off at any point. And with Cormier being in his late 30s, you'd figure there's going to be a, a little pocket of time where Cormier is gone and it's just Jones and Rumble. And Jones just has to get in trouble once. And all of a sudden, Rumble is the number one guy in the division and he can still hold a belt. So for him to leave at this point, it seems really surprising. Obviously, as an athlete, you only have a limited window where you can be at the top of your game, and he's within that window right now. So anytime he takes off right now doing something else, it's time that he's missing out on that, and it's time that whatever his job is now, if it doesn't go well for him, or maybe he just kind of gets bored with it, and he has to look back and say, hey, I could have still been that guy. Who knows what I could have done? I was so close. I fought guys like Alexander Gustafson. I fought Jimmy Manoa, uh, Glover Teixeira, and just knocked these guys out within a round each. And I never really held the belt. That's That's got to be a tough thing for him to live with. And I'm sure at some point that's going to sink in on him. But you wonder how long it's going to be. And you wonder what his game's going to look like by the time he comes back. Hopefully it's not too long. But, I mean, he was getting pretty emotional in the octagon. It sounds like this is something that he generally did plan and something that he's ready to move on from. So, it, it at the very least, I wouldn't expect to see him back within a year, if not more than that. But it, that's that's really unfortunate. And you hate to see it. As far as Cormier goes... Uh, he initially tried to get the fans to cheer for him, did the stupid little line where it's like, oh, what if I pretend to retire? Would you guys like that? And that's kind of a stupid line, and he got booed rightfully for it. But then after that, he was like, all right, fine, you guys are going to boo me anyway. Let's just let's go full heel. So then he started talking shit to Jimmy Manoa, saying, you just beat Corey Anderson, big fucking deal. You're not even ready for me. You can punch me right now barefisted. I'll, I'll take it. You have nothing for me. Uh, then Joe Rogan asked about John Jones and... He did the Mike Jones thing, where it was the whole, who, Mike Jones, who, Mike Jones, but instead it was the John Jones thing, so so uh, Rogan would say John Jones, then Cormier would say, who, John Jones, who, John Jones, but eventually he obviously admitted, yes, I know who John Jones is, uh, called him out, did the line where it's like you gotta get your extracurriculars in order before you can come back in the classroom, I thought that was a pretty good line for him, but um, he was just spitting fire at the end of it, and he walks away with the belt, and it looks like at this point, with July being when John Jones will be back, and with Cormier obviously having to take some time off to get his nose repaired, then the training camp afterwards, it makes the most sense that the John Jones fight is the next one set. Uh, there's the Gustafson versus Teixeira fight that's set right now. 
what would make the most sense to me is you book John Jones versus Daniel Cormier right now, but you tell Jimmy Manoa, I want you to be prepared anyway. Maybe you give Jimmy Manoa a fight with a guy who's outside the top 15 or something and just say, hey, look, if anything happens to John Jones, you're stepping into this title fight and you work from there. That would probably be the, the right move to make. But again, I don't know what their plans are for the July event. I don't know if they're looking to do International Fight Week for this fight, if they want to look further along the lines. I don't know how long it's going to take Daniel Cormier's nose to repair. I don't know if he's had problems with his nose in the past. Obviously, with Rory McDonald, he wanted to take a long time off after his nose broke, but he had some serious chronic nose issues where it was just constantly breaking. So for him, that long layoff was needed. I don't know if that'll be the case for Cormier, but again, he'll have to go to the doctor and work that all out. In the co-main event, prior to this fight, I had said that I believed that Chris Weidman would, the, would win the fight. My reasoning for it was I felt that he would be able to get the takedown on Musasi, and then once he got him down, he'd be able to use his passing game, work to a strong position, and either win by ground and pound or by some sort of submission. In the first round, he was pretty effective in getting his takedowns. He was able to reach down and grab Musasi's leg for a single, uh, switch to a double if he needed to. Uh, first time he got him down, passed the guard, got into a good position, but then Musasi scrambled out, got back to the feet. And it seemed like every successive time he went for a takedown, it was a little bit sloppier and a little bit slower and a little bit less effective. He did get a couple more takedowns, but you could definitely see that he was tiring. It's unclear whether it was an adrenaline thing or what exactly it was for him. But by the end of the first round, you were kind of wondering if Weidman's got to go another 10 minutes, how strong is he going to be by the end of it? Second round comes around. Uh, again, he's able to get Musasi down. Actually, towards the middle slash and the middle, or I guess towards the end of the round, which ended up being stopped early. He did get a takedown, got to mount, uh, was looking to finish, actually had the back for a second, uh, but Musasi was able to scramble out again, got back to his feet. And then the fight ended in a very just disappointing and obviously controversial, and I don't feel that they got it right at all. So Musasi had Weidman in a position where it was a bit of a headlock type of spot. Uh, Weidman was kind of playing the game where he's got his hands down on the mat, through the first knee, um, one of the hands was in the air, so that one was legal. The second knee, even on the replay, and they made it seem like this was obvious, but even on the replay, it wasn't all that clear. It looked as though, and again, this is in slow-mo, it looked it was difficult to tell, but especially in real time for Dan Margliata, it looked as though Chris Weidman had both hands down, all four points of contact down, and that was an illegal knee. So Margliata stepped in and gave Weidman his time to recover from it. Now, important thing to note here, if... Dan Merliotta steps, let's just pretend that Merliotta thought this was a legal knee and he steps in to stop the fight right there. That is a terrible stoppage. Okay, on that second knee, Weidman was still on his feet. He didn't crumble down. He was still actively defending himself. That's not a time to stop the fight. And I don't believe that Merliotta had any intention to stop the fight, thinking that was it was over at that point anyway. That's important to note because when this fight is over and when it was called... That essentially is the final strike that the fight was called on. Since the fight was stopped, it was essentially stopped after that second knee when Weidman still had his posture about him, when he still had his feet underneath him, and everything was going. But again, ref jumps in and says, okay, it's illegal. We're going to give you time to recover. Now, again, this happened earlier in the card. I don't remember which fight it was on where a fighter took a shot that was a high leg kick. He reached down, grabbed his um, grabbed his cup to indicate that he was injured or that he had taken a nut shot. It was starting to kind of collapse a little bit too. Ref said fight on, he stood back up, kept fighting, and everything went along as normal. It's important to note that because a lot of times fighters, they'll be hurt, but they'll have to fight through it, or they'll just kind of have to like put on a face like they're okay and just keep working through it and get through it. But if you say, hey, it's okay, you can stop, just take your time, they'll stop and they'll take their time. And especially in Chris Weidman's case, where like I said, he was tired in the first round, and he was doing a lot better when he had more energy. 
if you're Chris Weidman and you're being told, hey, you can have a few minutes here, catch your, I guess, not necessarily catch your breath, but get your wits about you, it makes perfect sense that Weidman would be like, oh, okay, I'll get my wits about me. The ref stepped in and said this was okay. This isn't the stop to the fight. This is just a pause because of an illegal knee. So Weidman was taking his time. He was trying to catch his breath, and that's completely understandable. Now, granted, if if let's just pretend that this was a legal knee, and again, I'd have to watch the replay again. It really looked like his hand started to come up after contact was made on the knee, on the second knee. It, to me, it still looks like it might have been an illegal knee, but regardless, I don't think that really changes the outcome here or how it should be perceived. Because again, in the state of New York, there is no replay. So even if they go by, go back to replay and find that they had the wrong call, they still have to go by the ref's call. And that's the problem here. The ref made the call that it was an illegal knee, so you have to go by that. And they were asking Weidman, are you going to be able to fight? And he, you could actually hear him on the pay-per-view. He was saying, yes, I'll keep fighting. But then the commission came in and stopped the fight anyway. So Weidman, he could have kept fighting. Yes, he probably played a little bit of possum just to catch his breath and use the time to recover. But that time was given to him. You can't just give him that time and then say, oh, well, you took it. So sorry, now you lose. That's not how it works here. So the fact that that's what happened, that's just an absolute joke. I think Weidman, because of the fact that we know that the rules were not properly interpreted here. There's a chance that he may be able to maybe able to go back and get this overturned to a no contest. To be quite honest, that'd probably be the fairest way to go about it. Musasi, yes, he did land a couple hard shots there, but it's not like Musasi ever looked like he was about to win that fight. He did have a strong flurry in the start of the second, but outside of that, I mean, to give him the win on that doesn't really seem quite right. And then obviously Weidman had plenty of times when he looked strong. I would give him the first round for sure. The second round, it looked like he was starting to go in his direction, especially after he was able to get the takedown and get to mount and work from there. So to take that away from Weidman is completely unfair. If you're going to make the call that it was an illegal knee, which it may still have been, but regardless, if you're going to make that call, there is no instant replay. There's nothing in place to t kind of change this around. You have to go with the initial call. If you're going to say, hey, look, Chris, on review, and he, again, you really you don't have the review, but even if they said, hey, look, on review, we realized that the knee was legal. Are you going to continue now or are we going to have to stop this fight? Weidman would have said yes. He would have kept going. And it sounds like he was saying yes anyway. So to stop this fight on him, this isn't Chris Weidman's fault. Chris Weidman was defending himself when the fight was still going. When the ref said that the fight was stopped, that's when he took his time to recover. There's nothing wrong with what Weidman did. And for him to take a loss here is absolutely ridiculous. And it needs to get fixed immediately. Outside of the wild main and co-main events of this card, there were also a lot of really good fights on the undercard. Um, just below the coming event between Gegard Mousasi and Chris Weidman, there was the fight between Cynthia Calvillo and Pearl Gonzalez. This is Calvillo's second fight in the UFC. And in the first fight, she looked really good, primarily with her grappling, how she was able to just kind of work her way into positions. And just, she's, I wouldn't say she's not technical. She definitely is technical, but she's definitely gifted. And you can kind of see uh, if you've ever grappled before, if you train in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, there's just some times where guys come in where they aren't as experienced as you, but you can just kind of tell, like, by the way, they're able to apply pressure and just how they're able to find positions. They just kind of have something special, and they just have, like, a great aptitude for it. And you can definitely see with Calvillo that she fits into that mold as well. In a way, that's kind of like what's made Paige Van Zandt good in the past, where her wrestling isn't exactly the most impressive, but she's still able to grapple, outgrapple some really good fighters like Felice Herrig. In her fight with her, she was able to take her down and control her from top and find a lot of really good positions, even though Herrig... I'd have to imagine it's a higher belt in jiu-jitsu and probably more technical as well. Uh, we're seeing a lot of that with, from Calvillo. So interesting for Team Alpha Male to have a second person like that. Now it sounds like Her or, um, it sounds like Paige Vanzant's no longer with Team Alpha Male. You have to wonder if Calvillo is part of the reason why. It wouldn't surprise me if she gets the better of Paige in, in the room. It, she She's more impressive to watch as far as how her grappling goes and 
striking wise. It's not like either of them are really fantastic. Um, and then Pearl Gonzalez obviously was of great interest because of the breast implants. It was interesting to see. I think everyone was not really hoping because I guess that'd be the that'd be a weird thing to hope for, but just kind of interested interested to see how she'd fight. You wouldn't want to see her um, her implants explode or anything like a pro wrestler, but you'd figure if the commission's willing to cancel the fight for a quick second, you'd want to at least see some reason why that's a real concern. And really, nothing in that fight came up to give any real concern for that. Uh, Tiago Alves beat Patrick Cote. After that fight, Patrick Cote, uh, much like Rumble Johnson, had retired. Cote, a little less surprising because we know that he's got the gig lined up in Canada with UFC where he does their French commentary and he's very good at it. Still don't know what Rumble's gig is. And then for Tiago Alves, just surprisingly good performance out of him. He had struggled at lightweight. Part of that could have been due to the really big weight cut for him and lost to Jim Miller. But to come back and beat a former middleweight and a guy who's been pretty successful lately in Patrick Cote outside of the Donald Cerrone fight, that's a big sign for him. I don't know what you would exactly do next for Tiago Alves. I don't know that you really want to put him against a top 15 guy quite yet, but he's got a name. And if you've got a guy who's building their, building their way up, I don't know if Neil Magny and Kamaru Usman are going to fight. If not, maybe you got the Black Zillions and ATT thing right there. Possibly that's a fight that you can book and at least give Usman a win over a big name if you can't give him a win over a high-ranked guy. But in Usman's case, and we'll get to him soon, I feel like he's probably ready for a higher-ranked guy more so than a big-name guy at this point. Um, and then the first fight on the card, this one I had predicted over the or during the preview show. I thought that Charles Oliveira, I wasn't really terribly committal on it. I was just saying I was surprised by how the odds were so stacked against Charles Oliveira. I felt that Brooks wouldn't exactly dominate him on the feet and on the ground. Oliveira would have the advantage. Uh, did not expect Oliveira to actually get the takedown, though, right away. I figured he'd, if he was going to do any good work, he'd be off of his back. And he was able to get... Will Brooks down, who I'm assuming probably wasn't prepared for the takedown either. He fought Michael Chandler in the past and was able to defend takedowns from him. So you'd figure Charles Oliveira probably wouldn't do a whole lot more than Chandler could. But Oliveira was able to get him down. Um, Brooks kind of got back up, but then Oliveira got him back down again, eventually snuck around to his back, uh, sunk in a standing rear naked choke. And Brooks, I mean, he hung in there for a while, but it just got to the point where it was too tight and he had to tap. So huge win for Oliveira. It sounds like he wants to get back down to 45. I'd rather not see him down there, but... I mean, it's it's his career. It's his decision. Hopefully he does stay at 55 and stay at a healthier weight class for him, but who knows. As far as Will Brooks goes, I feel like he's a guy who still is, in my book, he's a top 10 lightweight fighter, but he's had some tough matchups. Like I had mentioned in the preview, the matchup with Oliveira is not a good matchup for him. Will Brooks is a guy who's really effective when he's able to put a lot of pressure on guys, keep them from taking him down. He's really good against wrestlers, and he's really good at... at um just kind of having staying active on his feet. And if he gets you down, he's pretty good at staying pretty safe and doing well with his ground and pound against a guy like Oliveira. Again, it's, it's just not a position where you want to grapple with him. And with Oliveira's length, it was going to be a tough one to strike. And then speaking of Oliveira, there was the Cowboy Oliveira fight too, where it was a little bit closer in the beginning, but again, he was fighting a guy who massively outsized him and had no business in the weight class. Hopefully Will Brooks gets a, I wouldn't necessarily say easier, but, a better a better matchup that fits his style next time around because I do think that he still has a chance to work his way up in the lightweight division. At this point, I wouldn't say that he's really going to be a future UFC champion, but he can definitely still be a top contender for him. On the undercard, Miles Jury made his return, um, just absolutely dominated Mike Delatore, took him down, um, just dominated with position, just started raining down elbows on him, and eventually won by a ground-and-pound TKO. Kamaru Usman, who I... This was a tough pick for me because... I knew how good Usman was, but I also knew how good Strickland was. And I think that says more about Strickland, or, or it says more about Usman in the aftermath of this. 
I thought Strickland could actually win this fight, and I believe I actually might have picked him as well. Just Strickland, pretty savvy grappler. I believe he's a brown belt in jiu-jitsu, pretty good wrestler, pretty good defensive, a pretty good defensive wrestler too. But Usman was just able to get him down, control position the entire time, land some hard shots, and just just a really impressive performance out of him. So, like I was saying before, you could either put him up against a top-ranked guy. He's asking for Neil Magny, which is a fight that I'd be interested in. Um, but again, if you can't get him with a top rank guy, at least go for a name like Alves, but hopefully he does get a top rank guy. Cause I think he's a guy who's slowly working his way into title contention and hopefully he can have some more exciting finishes and doesn't end up in the John Fitch situation where he's just out grappling everyone and no one's excited and no one wants to see him in a title fight. He's a great fighter. And hopefully as he keeps improving, he starts getting some finishes to add on to the impressive performances. Cause like I said, this the way that he beat Sean Strickland, if you don't know who Sean Strickland is or if you don't remember any of Sean Strickland's past fights, this might not seem impressive to you, but this is a very impressive one in the way he did it. Uh, Shane Burgos defeated Charles Rosa. Uh, Rosa had a pretty good strategy out there. Burgos does like to lean a lot on his front leg, or likes to box a lot, use a lot of head movement and counter. Uh, so attacking that front leg was pretty effective initially, but Burgos was able to make some adjustments later on in the fight, caught Rosa. Uh, drilled him. Rosa was kind of flopping around making some weird faces, but it was clear that he was rocked and the ref stepped in while he was still standing. I didn't have any problem with the stoppage. It looked as though Rosa wasn't going anywhere positive from there. After the first hard shot, he took a couple other hard shots, so it's not like he was doing any better to defend himself, and he certainly wasn't offensive at that point. And in the first fight on the undercard, Patrick Cummins defeated Jan Blakovich. Uh, I thought that Blakovich was going to win this fight, and if you watch the first round, you can understand why I thought so, but he... Also, sort of like Chris Weidman, but obviously Weidman, you didn't get to see the whole fight played out, but he, he definitely got tired after the first round. I don't know if he shot his load trying to get the finish or what exactly happened, but he got exhausted. Uh, Patrick Cummins was eventually able to out-wrestle him, and even though you could tell that Bukovic was probably better off his back than Cummins was on top, he was getting some good armbar attempts. Between him getting more tired and Cummins being more sweaty, those just weren't going to land, and Cummins was just starting to dominate position, and he got the win. Uh, one of the things that kind of bugged me seeing Patrick Cummins out there, though, is his top game was very, very rudimentary. He wasn't really trying to pass. He really wasn't showing many signs of a good guard passer either. A lot of it was he'd get to the guard and just kind of do a can opener, uh, throw some arm punches. He really wasn't ever in a position where you felt like he was about to finish or he was working his way towards the finish. And against a guy like Blakovic, who's just dead exhausted, if you're not able to really do a whole lot from the top, that's a bit concerning against some of the better guys in the division. And obviously his chin seems to be problematic for him as well. So good win for Cummins, but it doesn't really tell me much about his future in the division. As far as Lakovich goes, looked like he was the better fighter. He just didn't have the better gas tank. So next time around, you probably still want to give him a top 15 guy, but he's going to have to work on his conditioning and be in a position where that's not going to happen. Cause if that's how he looks in a 15 minute fight, if he eventually works his way towards some main events and has to fight five rounds and fight 25 minutes, it's going to be a real problem for him. Uh, and then on the fight pass undercard, the main event of that was Gregor Gillespie versus Andrew Holbrook. As I had mentioned in the preview show, Gillespie is a guy who you're hearing a lot of really positive things out of American Top Team from. And usually when you have guys who are getting a lot of positive words out of their camp, that's a really good sign for them. But when it's out of a camp like ATT, that's a, that's a huge sign that they have a lot of potential. So between just his great wrestling background and him just showing up and knocking out Andrew Holbrook in 21 seconds, it it really confirms a lot of what they're saying and... He's a guy who's sort of in that Usman territory now where everyone kind of is starting to see this is a guy who's probably t top 10 in his division. He's he's very talented, but it's a question of who do you put him up against so he can prove it. Definitely want to give him a top 15 fighter in his next fight, I believe. I'd, 
I don't know how ATT feels about that, how long they want to kind of keep him working, keep him improving. Obviously, he had mentioned after the fight ended that the knockout was something new for him, and it just shows signs of improvement. I don't know how he wants to time everything before he starts fighting against the division's elite, but he's clearly a, a handful for anyone in that weight class. Uh, the next fight was Desmond Green versus Josh Emmett. Not exactly the most exciting fight. Emmett was just trying to throw a lot of power strikes, whereas Green was trying to be a little bit quicker, but Emmett was taking the center. That was pretty clean, pretty clear that Desmond Green won that fight, but they did go to a split decision, but big win for Green. He's a former University of Buffalo wrestler, so for him to get a win in Buffalo is pretty big. Uh, Caitlin Chukagian versus Irene Aldana. This was a fight that I didn't really watch it from a judge's standpoint. I wasn't really like trying to score it. So I had absolutely no idea who won, but even if you were, it just it wasn't really clear who was doing better. Aldana looked like she was throwing hard, but she wasn't even... A lot of her punches, like, she'd be swinging hard, but she wouldn't exactly, like, be putting her hips into it all the time or wouldn't always turn her shoulders on it. So they didn't exactly do the most damage. Uh, Chukagian wasn't necessarily doing a ton of damage herself either. She was doing that annoying ki thing that Holly Holm does too, which made it pretty easy to cheer against her, but she gets the win. And in the first fight of the card, Magomed Bibulatov, who is... A guy who's being looked at as a huge prospect. They were talking about him being like the next Khabib. Uh, he had a good showing against Janelle Lausa, but it wasn't one where I'm clamoring to see him against the division's top guys. Lausa's not a ranked guy. Um, on the feed, it was kind of close. Uh, I guess Bibolatov, just the throw of the takedown was giving him the edge there. And then on the mat, again, it wasn't exactly like a Patrick Cummins type of situation where they're not doing anything off the top, but it's not like... He got Lousa down and was just passing his guard, working towards strong positions, attempting submissions, or doing any of that. It was more just kind of control and pound out, and that's not always the best thing, especially when you have to start fighting guys who are more skilled or having to take fights where they go into the five rounds because you're taking a main event or you're fighting for a title. So he's got some time, obviously. He just made his de debut now, but he's not a guy where I'd be clamoring to see him against a top 15 guy next or even two fights from now. Friday morning during the weigh-ins, Daniel Cormier and Anthony Arnold Johnson, neither of them had weighed in with five minutes to go left in the weigh-in. Cormier hit the scale first. He was 1.2 pounds over. On, it looked as though he was probably not going to be able to make weight. Now, granted, in New York, there is a rule that gives you two hours after you first weigh in. So in theory, he could have actually had two more hours. But in most states, you'd figure if the weigh-in ends at 11 o'clock and you're not weighed in by 11 o'clock, then you're out of it. So he was under that impression. Took about two minutes, got back on the scale. And surprisingly, after he was 1.2 pounds over, weighed in exactly at 205, made weight for the fight. Um, a lot of people noticed that when he was doing that, he was pushing down on a towel, using his hands to kind of push down, uh, relieve some weight. This is a, one of many tricks that a lot of wrestlers know of, is different ways you can kind of use to appear lighter on the scale. As far as whether or not I think this is what actually happened and what actually made him miss the weight, I'm not entirely sure. He said that the scale was a little off. Now, it is worth noting that Rumble Johnson, who had weighed in just after him, weighed in at 203.8. Um, 203.8, of course, is 1.2 pounds less than 205. I don't know that Rumble would take the time to cut an extra pound or so. So the fact that just after DC weighed in at 205, or at 206.2, he got back on, and then he was down 1.2, and then Rumble was down 1.2 from the 205 mark, I find it to be rather odd i don't know what the explanation for that is but again that seems to help out cormier's case another thing to note for cormier is that the two guys who were holding the towel it wasn't like it was bob cook and javier mendez that was holding it they were both employees of the commission so if you're putting a lot of force on it you'd figure they'd probably notice it and be like hey what the hell 
uh, Cormier kind of played it off as though he was like trying to look down at the scale and see what his weight was and kind of watch that. But again, it it's tough because again with digital scales you have to be really steady in the weight because it takes some time to register. So if your weight's fluctuating because you're not putting on the same amount of pressure on the towel, then it might not actually catch it. So it's possible that what DC said about the scale being off is true because for one it was the 1.2 pound difference for him but also it appears that was the case for Rumble and again like I had said before I don't think Rumble if his scale was telling him he's at 205 that he'd keep cutting an extra pound or so if he didn't have to especially since he was cutting it so close to the clock so it's actually possible that this was an issue with the scale it's just weird that it would fix itself or make that weird adjustment within two minutes of Cormier weighing at the wrong weight as far as the um, commission response to it, where they were saying he wasn't pushing off the towel when he clearly, clearly was putting pressure on the towel, whether or not the towel carried any of his weight, there's no question if you look at the picture that he was pushing down on the towel. So that was kind of weird that they just flat out deny what was obviously true. Um, in the time afterwards, nothing really changed with that. They still accepted it. They still took in Daniel Cormier's weight as it was. As far as where they would gain money in this that's one of the things that people are saying that they just purposely did it just to keep the event going i'm not entirely sure where they make their money i'd figure most of what they make on these events is primarily from ticket sales and a lot of the local stuff um pay-per-view buys i don't believe really ties into what they make outside of the tax they get on the fighters so i guess if cormier would make more money on his pay-per-view points on a show that sells more because there are less people who are disinterested by him missing weight Perhaps in taxes, there could be some extra benefit to York, but I don't think there's a whole lot more they could have gained out of it. So again, just a really weird situation. As far as John Jones's comments, where it's one of the dirtiest things he's ever seen, I mean, it's that's just a trolling remark by John Jones. If the guy who pokes everybody in the eyes and loves to do that oblique kick to the knee but tries to blow your knee out, if that's if a guy pushing down on a towel to cut a pound or so really quickly is the dirtiest thing he's ever seen, then he must be fighting with his eyes closed because that doesn't make any sense at all. In addition to the New York State Athletic Commission potentially botching the Daniel Cormier weigh-in situation, there was also the really weird situation on the third fight on the main card, which was the Pearl Gonzalez versus Cynthia Calvillo fight. Now, this was a fight where leading in, Gonzalez had um, stated that she did have breast augmentation in the past, and that was disclosed. Uh, everything went on as normal. They both weighed in for the fight. Both Gonzalez and Calvillo made weight. But then um, after making weight, Gonzalez was informed that she was going to be pulled out of the fight because of her breast augmentation or because of her breast implants. Um, this was a weird one in how it was reported because there are some outlets that are saying that she was never pulled from the card while other outlets jumped on it and said that she was pulled. Later in the day prior to the ceremonial weigh-in, which I believe was at 6 o'clock, it was stated that that was actually not the case, that the fight would be on. And... As, as far as how it all worked out, I think you could look at it a couple ways for Pearl, Pearl Gonzalez. One way, in theory, if you're getting breast implants, it's not really something you want everybody to know. And the fact that so many people did know and so many people really latched onto that story. This was a story that got covered by ESPN, Bleacher Report. Um, as far as web traffic goes, it was probably one of the higher traffic um, news stories that had come out over the weekend or prior to the fight. Uh, on YouTube, even a lot of videos that were covering it were getting in the six figures in terms of viewership. So if Pearl Gonzalez didn't want people to know that she has breast implants, well, I guess tough titties now they do know. But on the positive side for her, Pearl Gonzalez is a fighter making her UFC debut, isn't, inter isn't terribly experienced, and heading into the fight, now all of a sudden a lot of people know who she is, a lot of people are interested in her, and 
a lot of people looked her up. And the thing with women's MMA, as a women's athlete, you don't really want to be known for your looks as much as you're known for what you can do athletically. And it's kind of unfortunate that that comes into play so much. But again, this is mixed martial arts. You're looking at the male 18 to 34 demographic as the main de demographic. And if you got a lot of them that are interested in you because of your looks, that can go a long way. I mean, you look at Paige Van Zandt, for example. She's probably top eight, maybe top ten at, in her weight class, but become a huge star be, largely because of her looks and because of her personality. And for Pearl Gonzalez, if she can kind of take the negative of kind of being called out for having breast implants and turn it into a positive and take advantage of the fact that there are going to be a lot of MMA fans who are interested in her now just because of her looks and because of because of what she's working with right now, then, I mean, so be it. As, as far as a fighter goes, though, I, I don't actually know what the silicone implants weigh. Usually, as a fighter, you're looking to cut down on any unnecessary weight, so for her to just add weight to her, it's going to be kind of tough, but it's not like she fights in a heavier weight class. She's fighting at 115, so you wouldn't figure that it's going to damage her too much, but you figure as competition heats up, the, the smallest differences make the biggest, or can really adjust the results in the biggest way, so... Hopefully, down the line, these breast implants don't get, get in the way and force her to fight fighters who are stronger than her because they don't have the extra silicone weighing them down on the scales. After taking a few weeks off, the UFC obviously came back with UFC 210 over the weekend. They're going to be coming back again on Fox with a UFC fight night. The main event of that card will be Demetrius Johnson versus Wilson Hayes. There's also Rose Namajunas versus Michelle Waterson and what could be a fight that either puts the winner in title contention immediately or they put him about one fight away. There is the Kovalkiewicz versus Gedalia fight. You'd wonder if the winner of that fight gets the next shot. Now, granted, both of them have already fought Joanna, and if Jessica Andrade beats Joanna, Joanna probably gets a rematch. So perhaps the winner of this fight fights the winner of the Kovalkiewicz versus um, Gedalia fight, and then the winner of that maybe gets a title shot. But again, this is going to be a very big fight in that division. You've also got Jack Ray versus Robert Whitaker. And there are a bunch of other really good fights that are kind of stuck throughout that card, but I'll, I'll get through those in a later segment. Right now, I'm going to talk about the main event between Mighty Mouse and Wilson Hayes. This was a fight that I believe was scheduled for last July or last June. Uh, Wilson Hayes stayed healthy for the fight, but Mighty Mouse needed to get surgery. He pulled out. Uh, then they had the ultimate fighter come up. Tim Elliott got his title shot out of that. Had a tough fight with Johnson. Had a pretty good first round, but Johnson got through it and ended up dominating the rest of the fight. Got the win. So now Mighty Mouse is going to have a fight with Wilson Hayes again. Hayes got another win in between then. And what's going to be interesting about this fight is that you've got a guy in Wilson Hayes who you probably say is pretty clearly the better grappler, at least the better submission grappler. The question for him is going to be how he's going to be able to get on top and what he's going to be able to do if he actually gets there. Mighty Mouse is pretty good defensively, pretty good at getting back to his feet, even in the fight against Henry Cejudo. Cejudo was able to hit an inside trip on in the middle of the octagon, got him down. Uh, was doing a pretty good job of pressure from the top. I actually can't complain too much about what Cejudo was doing, but Mighty Mouse was eventually able to work some butterfly guard to create space, eventually got his feet on the hips, kicked him away, and got back up. And Cejudo, again, great at getting people down. But again, even as good as Cejudo is in the clinch, Cejudo was losing most of his exchanges in the clinch against Mighty Mouse. Um, eventually took a bunch of knees, and that's what led to him getting defeated. So for Wilson Hayes, if he's able to get into the clinch with Mighty Mouse... What's he going to do that Cejudo didn't do? I don't know that there's a whole lot, to be quite honest. I could see him trying to push Mighty Mouse up against the fence. If he's able to do that again, that might not be the easiest thing to do. Mighty Mouse is really good at his lateral movement. It's not easy to corner him. So if Wilson Hayes is not able to corner him, um, if he's able to clinch up, I mean, 
it's going to be tough for him to change levels. That's something that Mighty Mouse is really good at. He's good at keeping his guy, the guy he's clinched up with, from changing levels on him. Sahudo um, again with his takedown, he had to kind of go upper body on it. He really couldn't shoot down or couldn't kind of clear an arm and get lower and shoot for like a single or a double. So it's going to be tough for Hayes to get the fights to the mat that way. Uh, as far as shooting from the center of the cage, that's going to be difficult too because you have to be able to time it. If you're not doing well with your striking, you're not going to be fast enough to catch Mighty Mouse. You'd figure Mighty Mouse should have a pretty clear advantage on the feed in this fight, but Wilson Hayes should probably, is, is probably going to stalk forward, throw a lot of hard shots. But again, to me in the past, I haven't seen him really be that quick or even all that effective with his takedowns to the point where I think that he's going to be able to get Mighty Mouse down and get into his game. And if he can't get Mighty Mouse down and into his game, then you're kind of going to have a slower, stronger guy dealing with a faster guy who's very effective and is just going to light him up on the feet. And to me, I think that's the most likely thing that's going to happen here. Wilson Hayes, he, he's a very skilled fighter, very dangerous fighter. But again, what worries me the most is I don't know that he's going to be able to get the fight to the ground. Even when he does get fights to the ground, it's not like he's one of those guys like a Damian Meyer or a Jack Ray Sousa where he's immediately passing, getting to a dominant position and finishing. Uh, he can kind of grind on guys a little bit. And in a fight like this with Mighty Mouse, if you actually are able to get him down at any point, you have to be able to work to your offense and work towards the finish. And if Wilson Hayes isn't able to do that, then his path to victory is probably going to have to be repeatedly getting getting Mighty Mouse down, controlling him, and either eventually getting to a finish in a later round or just stacking up enough round wins where he can win a decision. But to me, that doesn't seem likely. This will be another win for Mighty Mouse. He's going to, I believe this will tie Anderson Silva's record, put him in a position where he's got one more fight until he breaks it. And then at that point, you can start looking at super fights for him. And hopefully he does start looking for super fights so he can get himself a bigger name. Now, I know he likes to complain about how he doesn't get much of a push on the U or doesn't get much of a push from the UFC. But here's an example where they're putting him on Fox. Fox is the biggest outlet the UFC can possibly put him on. You're not going to get as many people viewing a pay-per-view as you're going to get people who view network TV Big Fox. Again, Fox Sports 1 isn't as big as Big Fox. So he's got a really big platform for this fight. They're going to have the NASCAR events prior to this where they're going to be advertising the fight. So, again, the NASCAR MMA uh, lead-in, that kind of works out. There was that weird um, story with Bellator and NASCAR having some kind of deal, but it looks like that wasn't even true. But, again, point being... This is a big opportunity for Johnson because he's going to be in front of a big audience. He's going to get promoted on other big events that have other males who are in the 1834 demographic who are interested in fighting that are going to want to tune into this. And if he can put on a great performance, hopefully they build his next fight as that record-breaking fight. And then after that, you start getting those um, super fights, possibly a guy like Cody Garbrandt who's talking about fighting him eventually. Go Cody wants to be a three-division champion. So if Cody knocks off Dillashaw... Uh, you look at where Dominic Cruz is at, you don't know how quick he's going to heal. Maybe this is a fight that they can make even sooner. But again, there's a lot of opportunities for Mighty Mouse if he can get a win and get a dominant win here and do it in front of a pretty big audience. And hopefully he pulls the numbers too. Co-main event on the Fox card, we're going to have Rose Namajunas fighting Michelle Watterson. This will be a battle between two of the latest people who had knocked off uh, Paige Van Zant. Uh, both of these girls are towards the top of their division. Michelle Watterson had come in from Invicta, moved up weight class from Adam Weight, has looked impressive ever since. I believe she's undefeated in the UFC at Strawweight. Rose Namajunas had found herself one fight away from the title shot against Karolina Kovalkiewicz, ended up losing that one. I believe it was a 29-28 decision on all three judges' scorecards. So she was able to hang tough with Carolina, who again had a pretty tough fight with Joanna when she got there, but still wasn't able to get the victory. So this is going to be a big opportunity for her to 
kind of right that wrong that she had against Kovalkiewicz. Now, in this case, it doesn't. It's not inc- completely clear where the winner of this fight goes. So where the women's strawweight division is at right now is you have the champion Joanna Janjacek fighting Jessica Andrade. You've also got Claudia Gadelia and Karolina Kovalkiewicz fighting each other. Now you would think, just based off of rankings, that Claudia and um, Carolina would the winner of that fight gets another title shot. But again, Claudia's fought Joanna two times already and lost both times. A third fight between them, I don't know if that's exactly the most exciting fight or the best fight to sell right now. If Carolina wins, do you want to put her back in against Joanna right away? I mean, yes, she had a few good moments in that fight, but it's pretty clear that Joanna was the better fighter. If Carolina is someone you want to build up, you probably want to give her a little bit more time than just to have her fight Claudia in the meantime and then go right back at Joanna if Joanna wins. If Joanna loses, you're probably going to have to assume that she gets a rematch against Jessica Andrade just because of how impressive her title run has been up to this point. Unless she just gets dominated and has to take a long time off, sort of like the Ronda Rousey situation, which I don't really see happening. You'd have to figure that that would be the next fight there. But again, either way, after this fight is over with Rose and Michelle Waterson, if one of these two has a dominant win, you could definitely argue that they should get the title shot over the winner of Claudia versus Carolina, just because Claudia and Carolina had already fought and lost. And both Michelle and Rose, neither of them have fought against um, Ioanni and Jacek yet. But if, Jessica Andrade pulls an upset. They can definitely turn everything on its head. So this is a fight where, at best, you could be looking at a number one contenders fight, depending on how the winner looks. At worst, the winner is most likely just one fight away from a title fight. So again, this is a huge fight in that division. As far as how I think this fight's going to go, it's it's tough. I I think technically you probably have to give the slight edge to Waterson. Now, Nama Yunus, you'd assume, is probably a little bit bigger than Waterson. Waterson, again... You'd figure if the UFC had an atom weight division, that's where Waterson would be fighting. They don't, so she's moving up weight class just to be in the big show, and she's doing great in the meantime. Uh, on the feet, I'd give her, a, I'd say, a slight advantage. Uh, she's a little bit... It, it's kind of tough to say. I think um, Rose is a little bit better with throwing straighter shots and kind of getting direct to the point, whereas um, Michelle Waterson's a little bit fancier, and sometimes when you go for the fancier techniques you don't always land first and Rose is definitely a quick striker on the ground. They're both pretty smart, pretty technical at it. Um, I would say that Michelle probably has a slight edge there, but it's not really one where I'd imagine that if this fight goes to the ground, that it's going to be kind of like the Michelle Waterson versus Paige Van Zandt fight where she just was able to be more technical and just work her way right through. I think this would be one where their, their skills almost kind of like counteract each other and it doesn't really go anywhere from there. So this, this fight seems like one where, it's probably going to be a striking match. Both both fighters are probably going to get their shots off and get some good shots off. I'd have to give the slight edge to Waterson, but again, this is a really tough fight. It's a tough one to pick, and I'm really excited to see it just because of that. Anytime you have a fight like this where it's so closely contested and it's so tough to tell who you think is going to win, those fights are always the fun ones to watch. In the fight that probably gains the most interest internationally on the card, Jacare Souza will be fighting as Robert Whitaker. Now, again, Souza is a guy who could have a claim as being the top contender at middleweight. Uh, he technically did lose to Yoel Romero, but that was a fight where it went to split decision. I personally had Jacare winning that fight. In theory, because of the fact that the GSP fights lined up, you'd probably rather see Jacare and Yoel fight in a rematch and let that cement the position. But if you're, if you're Yoel Romero, you, you technically did get the win. That was a recent fight for him. I don't know that he wants to have to run that back with the risk that if they end up being tied one-to-one that Jacare gets the gets the lead on that because in theory if you're if you're even you don't really want to be in a position where 
there's really nothing for him to gain and everything for him to lose. But again, Jack Recon understands that. He knows that Michael Bisping is going to be fighting GSP. He knows that Yoel Romero is considered the top contender right now. And whether or not I, as a fan, or many other fans think that he won that fight, on paper he didn't. So Yoel is going to be ahead of him in line. So he's looking to stay active. Luke Rockhold was a fight that he was lined up to take a little while back. Rockhold ended up having to back out of that. Uh, he ended up taking a fight with Tim Boach, just did what Jacare does, got him down to the ground, was able to dominate him, and caught him in a, I believe it was a Kimura. That's a position that he hits a lot. With Robert Whitaker, it's, in, in a way, it's similar to the Boach fight in that it's a guy who's very dangerous on the feet, but Jacare has a major advantage on the ground. Same thing here. Whitaker's a much better striker than Tim Boach is, but he's not as good of a wrestler, so you'd have to wonder how that sort of pans out once this fight gets started. If you're Robert Whitaker, yes, you want to throw your power strikes because, again, the, the best shot for Whitaker here is to win by knockout, obviously. And for him to do that, he's going to have to throw hard. But if you throw hard, you risk getting caught. And by caught, that could either be just getting caught on the feet by Jock Race. Because, again, you if you have a guy who you knows is going to shoot on you and you keep your hands way up, they're going get to get in on your hips a lot easier. So you kind of have to keep your hands low. And Jock knows that he throws a lot of overhands to begin with. So for Whitaker, he's going to have to deal with just that danger on the feet. But again, if Jacare ends up getting him up against the fence or getting his hands around his waist and drags him to the mat, what I like about Jacare and what I like about Damian Maya and what I was talking about with Wilson Hayes where it wasn't necessarily the case with him is that once he gets you down, he immediately starts passing. He immediately looks for better positions. He'll work his um. It's just known as the Jacare pass, obviously, but it's kind of like his pass from half guard where he gets to side mount. Uh, from there, he can work his Camaros. He can get to mount. Uh brutal arm triangle that he has from the top just a lot of different options for him and i feel like with robert whitaker as tough as he is as strong as he is if he gets put in any type of position like that he's not going to be able to last very long so for him the question is going to be can you catch jockery at any point um and if he does get you down how defensive can you be and what can you do to kind of kill the clock and hope to get out of there but again I don't see him winning this fight he, he's obviously got a chance he throws hard he, he can clip anybody but this seems like another win for Jack Ray. Would the win, it doesn't really do anything for Jack Ray other than give him another paycheck. I mean, unless the UFC is telling him, hey, thanks for taking the fight. UL isn't taking the fights. We're actually going to slip you ahead of UL, which, again, I don't believe is the, actually going to be the case. Then he doesn't move up any higher than he otherwise would. If he loses this fight, then obviously he moves back behind Whitaker, if no one else. Um, if Whitaker wins the fight then that kind of puts him in the same type of position that Jock Ray's in now, where he's looked at as a possible title contender, but there's just so many people backed up in line. So you'd have to look at another fight for him. Uh, you, you wonder where Luke Rockhold is right now in terms of the line as far as where, where he'd be at. But o- overall, this just it's an exciting fight. It's an interesting fight, but it's not necessarily the most impactful fight because of the fact that Michael Bisping has been holding up this division and holding it hostage with his fights with Dan Henderson and now a fight with GSP. So hopefully that all gets taken care of and put away, and hopefully once that GSP fight's over, they can actually start putting actual contenders in there and return the middleweight division, the middleweight title, back to being a legitimate title instead of what's become a super fight title, essentially, if you even want to call these fights super fights. Outside of the wild main and co-main events of this card, there were also a lot of really good fights on the undercard. Um, just below the co-main event between Gegard Mousasi and Chris Weidman, there was the fight between Cynthia Calvillo and Pearl Gonzalez. This is Calvillo's second fight in the UFC. And in the first fight, she looked really good, primarily with her grappling, how she was able to just kind of work her way into positions. And just, she's, I wouldn't say she's not technical. She definitely is technical, but she's definitely gifted. And you can kind of see, uh, if you've ever grappled before, if you 
training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, there's some times where guys come in where they aren't as experienced as you, but you can just kind of tell, like, by the way, they're able to apply pressure and just how they're able to find positions. They just kind of have something special, and they just have, like, a great aptitude for it. And you can definitely see with Calvillo that she fits into that mold as well. In a way, that's kind of like what's made Paige Van Zandt good in the past, where her wrestling isn't exactly the most impressive, but she's still able to grapple, outgrapple some really good fighters like Felice Herrig. In her fight with her, she was able to take her down and control her from top and find a lot of really good positions, even though Herrig, I'd have to imagine, is a higher belt in jiu-jitsu and probably more technical as well. Uh, we're seeing a lot of that with, from Calvillo. So interesting for Team Alpha Male to have a second person like that. Now it sounds like Her or um, it sounds like Paige Van Zandt's no longer with Team Alpha Male. You have to wonder if Calvillo is part of the reason why. It wouldn't surprise me if she gets the better of Paige in in the room. It, she she's more impressive to watch as far as how her grappling goes and striking wise. It's not like either of them are really fantastic. Um, and then P Pearl Gonzalez obviously was of great interest because of the breast implants. It was interesting to see. I think everyone was. Not really hoping, because I guess that'd be the that'd be a weird thing to hope for. But just kind of interested interested to see how she'd fight. You wouldn't want to see her um, her implants explode or anything like a pro wrestler. But you'd figure if the commission's willing to cancel the fight for a quick second, you'd want to at least see some reason why that's a real concern. And really, nothing in that fight came up to give any real concern for that. Uh, Tiago Alves beat Patrick Cote after that fight. Patrick Cote, uh, much like Rumble Johnson, had retired. Cote, a little less surprising because we know that he's got the gig lined up in Canada with UFC where he does their French commentary and he's very good at it. Still don't know what Rumble's gig is. And then for Tiago Alves, just surprisingly good performance out of him. He had struggled at lightweight. Part of that could have been due to the really big weight cut for him. Lost to Jim Miller, but to come back and beat a former middleweight and a guy who's been pretty successful lately in Patrick Cote outside of the Donald Cerrone fight, that's a big sign for him. I don't know what you would exactly do next for Tiago Alves. I don't know that you really want to put him against a top 15 guy quite yet, but he's got a name. And if you've got a guy who's building their, building their way up, I don't know if Neil Magny and Kamaru Usman are going to fight. If not, maybe you get the Black Zillions and ATT thing right there. Possibly that's a fight that you can book and at least give Usman a win over a big name if you can't give him a win over a high-ranked guy. But in Usman's case, and we'll get to him soon, I feel like he's probably ready for a higher-ranked guy more so than a big-name guy at this point. Um, and then the first fight on the card. This one I had predicted over the or during the preview show. I thought that Charles Oliveira. I wasn't really terribly committal on it. I was just saying I was surprised by how the odds were so stacked against Charles Oliveira. I felt that Brooks wouldn't exactly dominate him on the feet and on the ground. Oliveira would have the advantage. Uh, did not expect Oliveira to actually get the takedown though. Right away, I figured he if he was going to do any good work, it'd be off of his back, and he was able to get. Will Brooks down, who I'm assuming probably wasn't prepared for the takedown either. He fought Michael Chandler in the past and was able to defend takedowns from him. So you'd figure Charles Oliveira probably wouldn't do a whole lot more than Chandler could. But Oliveira was able to get him down. Um, Brooks kind of got back up, but then Oliveira got him back down again, eventually snuck around to his back, uh, sunk into standing rear naked choke. And Brooks, I mean, he hung in there for a while, but it just got to the point where it was too tight and he had to tap. So huge win for Oliveira. It sounds like he wants to get back down to 45. I'd rather not see him down there, but... I mean, it's it's his career, it's his decision. Hopefully he does stay at 55 and stay at a healthier weight class for him, but who knows. As far as Will Brooks goes, I feel like he's a guy who still is, in my book, he's a top 10 lightweight fighter, but he's had some tough matchups. Like I had mentioned in the preview, the matchup with Oliveira is not a good matchup for him. Will Brooks is a guy who's really effective when he's able to put a lot of pressure on guys, keep them from taking him down. He's really good against wrestlers, and he's really good at... at um, just kind of having staying active on his feet, and if he gets you down, he's pretty good at staying pretty safe and doing well with his ground and pound against a guy like Oliveira. Again, it's 
it's just not a position where you want to grapple with him. And with Oliveira's length, it was going to be a tough one to strike. And then speaking of Oliveira, there was the Cowboy Oliveira fight too, where it was a little bit closer in the beginning. But again, he was fighting a guy who massively outsized him and had no misses in the weight class. Hopefully, Will Brooks gets a, I wouldn't necessarily say easier, but a better a better matchup that fits his style next time around because I do think that he still has a chance to work his way up in the lightweight division. At this point, I wouldn't say that he's really going to be a future UFC champion, but he can definitely still be a top contender for him. On the undercard, Miles Jury made his return, um, just absolutely dominated Mike Delatore, took him down, um, just dominated with position, just started raining down elbows on him, and eventually won by a ground-and-pound TKO. Kamaru Usman, who I... This was a tough pick for me because... I knew how good Usman was, but I also knew how good Strickland was. And I think that says more about Strickland, or, or it says more about Usman in the aftermath of this. I thought Strickland could actually win this fight, and I believe I actually might have picked him as well. Just Strickland, pretty savvy grappler. I believe he's a brown belt in jiu-jitsu, pretty good wrestler, pretty good defensive, a pretty good defensive wrestler too. But Usman was just able to get him down, control position the entire time, land some hard shots, and just just a really impressive performance out of him. So like I was saying before, you could either put him up against a top ranked guy. He's asking for Neil Magny, which is a fight that I'd be interested in. Um, but again, if you can't get him with a top ranked guy, at least go for a name like Alves, but hopefully he does get a top ranked guy. Cause I think he's a guy who's slowly working his way into title contention and hopefully he can have some more exciting finishes and doesn't end up in the John Fitch situation where he's just out grappling everyone and no one's excited and no one wants to see him in a title fight. He's a great fighter and, Hopefully, as he keeps improving, he starts getting some finishes to add on to the impressive performances. Because, like I said, this the way that he beat Sean Strickland, if you don't know who Sean Strickland is or if you don't remember any of Sean Strickland's past fights, this might not seem impressive to you, but this is a very impressive one in the way he did it. Uh, Shane Burgos defeated Charles Rosa. Uh, Rosa had a pretty good strategy out there. Burgos does like to lean a lot on his front leg, or likes to box a lot, use a lot of head movement and counter. Uh, so attacking that front leg was pretty effective initially, but Burgos was able to make some adjustments later on in the fight, caught Rosa. Uh, drilled him. Rosa was kind of flopping around making some weird faces, but it was clear that he was rocked and the ref stepped in while he was still standing. I didn't have any problem with the stoppage. It looked as though Rosa wasn't going anywhere positive from there. After the first hard shot, he took a couple other hard shots, so it's not like he was doing any better to defend himself, and he certainly wasn't offensive at that point. And in the first fight on the undercard, Patrick Cummins defeated Jan Blakovic. Uh, I thought that Blakovic was going to win this fight, and if you watch the first round, you can understand why I thought so, but he... Also, it's sort of like Chris Weidman, but obviously Weidman, you didn't get to see the whole fight played out, but he, he definitely got tired after the first round. I don't know if he shot his load trying to get the finish or what exactly happened, but he got exhausted. Uh, Patrick Cummins was eventually able to out-wrestle him, and even though you could tell that Blakovich was probably better off his back than Cummins was on top, he was getting some good armbar attempts. Between him getting more tired and Cummins being more sweaty, those just weren't going to land, and Cummins was just starting to dominate position, and he got the win. Uh, one of the things that kind of bugged me seeing Patrick Cummins out there, though, is his top game was very, very rudimentary. He wasn't really trying to pass. He really wasn't showing many signs of a good guard passer either. A lot of it was he'd get to the guard and just kind of do a can opener, uh, throw some arm punches. He really wasn't ever in a position where you felt like he was about to finish or he was working his way towards the finish. And against a guy like Blakovich, who's just dead exhausted, if you're not able to really do a whole lot from the top, that's a bit concerning against some of the better guys in the division. And obviously his chin seems to be problematic for him as well. So good win for Cummins, but it doesn't really tell me much about his future in the division. As far as Blakovich goes, looked like he was the better fighter. He just didn't have the better gas tank. So next time around, you probably still want to give him a top 15 guy, but he's going to have to work on his conditioning and be in a position where that's not going to happen. Because if that's how he looks in a 15-minute fight, 
if he eventually works his way towards some main events and has to fight five rounds and fight 25 minutes, it's going to be a real problem for him. Uh, and then on the Fight Pass undercard, the main event of that was Gregor Gillespie versus Andrew Holbrook. As I had mentioned in the preview show, Gillespie is a guy who you're hearing a lot of really positive things out of American Top Team from. And usually when you have guys who are getting a lot of positive words out of their camp, that's a really good sign for him. But when it's out of a camp like ATT, that's a, that's a huge sign that they have a lot of potential. So between just his great wrestling background and him just showing up and knocking out Andrew Holbrook in 21 seconds, it it really confirms a lot of what they're saying. And he's a guy who's sort of in that Usman territory now where everyone kind of is starting to see this is a guy who's probably t- top 10 in his division. He's he's very talented, but it's a question of who do you put him up against so he can prove it. Definitely want to give him a top 15 fighter in his next fight, I believe. I, I don't know how... ATT feels about that, how long they want to kind of keep him working, keep him improving. Obviously, he had mentioned after the fight ended that the knockout was something new for him, and it just shows signs of improvement. I don't know how he wants to time everything before he starts fighting against the division's elite, but he's clearly a, a handful for anyone in that weight class. Uh, the next fight was Desmond Green versus Josh Emmett. Not exactly the most exciting fight. Emmett was just trying to throw a lot of power strikes, whereas Green was trying to be a little bit quicker, but Emmett was taking the center. That was pretty clean. Pretty clear that Desmond Green won that fight, but it did go to a split decision. But big win for Green. He's a former University of Buffalo wrestler, so for him to get a win in Buffalo is pretty big. Uh, Caitlin Chukagian versus Irene Aldana. This was a fight that I didn't really watch it from a judge's standpoint. I wasn't really like trying to score it, so I had absolutely no idea who won. But even if you were, it just it wasn't really clear who was doing better. Aldana looked like she was throwing harder, but she wasn't even. A lot of her punches, like, she'd be swinging hard, but she wouldn't exactly, like, be putting her hips into it all the time or wouldn't always turn her shoulders on it. So they didn't exactly do the most damage. Uh, Chukagian wasn't necessarily doing a ton of damage herself either. She was doing that annoying ki thing that Holly Holm does too, which made it pretty easy to cheer against her. But she gets the win. And in the first fight of the card, Magomed Bibulatov, who is a guy who's being looked at as a huge prospect. They were talking about him being, like, the next Khabib. Uh, He had a good showing against Janelle Lhasa, but it wasn't one where I'm clamoring to see him against the division's top guys. Laos is not a ranked guy. Um, on the feet, it was kind of close. Uh, I guess Bibulatov, just the throw of the takedown was giving him the edge there, and then on the mat. Again, it wasn't exactly like a Patrick Cummins type of situation where they're not doing anything off the top, but it's not like he got Laos down and was just passing his guard, working towards strong positions, attempting submissions, or doing any of that. It was more just kind of control and pound out, and that's not always the best thing, especially... When you have to start fighting guys who are more skilled or having to take fights where they go into the five rounds because you're taking a main event or you're fighting for a title. So he's got some time, obviously. He just made his de- debut now, but he's not a guy where I'd be clamoring to see him against a top 15 guy next or even two fights from now. Saturday night, I was having a little bit of difficulty figuring out which promo I wanted to pick for this week's promo of the week. I was looking at some past ones, wasn't exactly sure, but after the main event and after the performance that Daniel Cormier put on, it was pretty clear to me that he was the one I'm going to have to choose for this week. Uh, This is going to be his post-fight interview with Joe Rogan. Now, granted, it didn't start off very good for him. He did this thing, and he did this at the um, Go Big press conference with John Jones, too, where he kind of made an appeal to the fans, where he's like, well, what if I do this? Would you guys like me then? And he got booed for it. But this time around, right after he got booed, he realized, okay, fine, that's what they're going to do. And then he just jumped in and went full heel. And really, that's what I appreciated most. So in this clip, you'll hear the part where he's like, oh, what if I retire? Would you guys cheer me then? Gets booed heavily. But then after that, he just goes full heel. And it's it's great what he did from there. Ladies and gentlemen, referee Big John McCarthy has called a stop to this contest at 3 minutes, 37 seconds of round number two. Declaring the winner 
by submission due to a rear naked choke. And still, the undisputed UFC light heavyweight champion of the world, Daniel DC I'm here with the winner and still UFC light heavyweight champion. Daniel, first of all, you, you got hit with a big shot in the first round. Is your nose broken? It, it might be, but hey, I can't get cheered. So what if I say, you know, this might be my last fight. I, are they gonna cheer me then? I'm going. Hey, listen, it is fine, Joe. I don't understand it. I don't understand. Boo me. I'm getting money in championship belts. What's up? <laughs> well, listen, you put on a hell of a performance tonight. Were you shocked that Rumble decided to engage with you in grappling? I couldn't believe that he was actually in force forcing the wrestling. So we were okay giving up the first round. It was like his round. I didn't want to take that head kick, but I, I knew that as we went on, I would eventually get to him. When he did go and clinch with you, did you think that it was a ploy? Did you think that he was gonna dis? I mean, what was what were your thoughts when that was going on? I was kind of thinking that when Rumble, like Rumble, has that big burst and then he starts to kind of panic. And at the end of the day, he's a wrestler, so he went back to what he knows. Took me down twice, so obviously it was working. But you got to keep me down once you get me down. That's what I was able to do. But man, listen, I hope that Anthony Johnson is not walking away from this sport. He has so much more to offer to the sport of mixed martial arts than walking away. People enjoy him. He's a gentleman. Anthony needs to continue fighting, man. That's what he was put on this earth to do. Now, you had some words with Jimmy Manoa, one of the top contenders in the world, cage side. What, what did you say to Jimmy? I told Jimmy, stop pretending he wants to fight me. He don't want none of this. He Why knows. You, you can't Why beat you me, Jimmy. Head? Jimmy, Why you can come in here with your bare knuckle and punch me. I will eat that. I will eat that. You can't beat me, Jimmy. Jimmy, you can't beat me. You know it. Don't lie to yourself. I like Corey Anderson, but you just beat Corey Anderson. Sit down, young man. Sit down. Now, also in the room, of course, is John Jones. Who? 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 Is that guy even eligible to fight yet? He's right there. Do you want to fight yet? A couple months from now. Don't, don't talk to me about a guy that's ineligible. When you get your when you get your together and you're ready to fight, I'm here waiting for you, young man. You know it. I've been waiting for two years. You got the first one. But you knew after the first one we had many coming. Hey, as a fighter, I respect him. We just don't see eye to eye. So locking me in here with him, that's a that's a that's a favor. That's a favor. He's a good fighter, but still not eligible. When he gets his academics in order, he can come back to the classroom. Congratulations. It was beautiful. Daniel Cormier, ladies and gentlemen.